Well, good morning and uh, happy Mother's Day. And for all our mothers out there, I hope you're feeling particularly loved and cherished. And I hope this is going to be a wonderful day for you. And I also want to, um, also want to speak to those who are probably hurting today. Uh, I know this can be a very painful day for some. Maybe if you're estranged from a parent or estranged from a child or you've lost a mother uh, or you've not yet experienced motherhood and are longing to do so. I hope whether you fall in either of those camps, I hope it's a day where you find ultimately your hope in Christ. But we're very glad you're here. And by the way, why are you here? If you were to sit down and write out what you believed would be the perfect Sunday, what all would it entail? That question went out to a group of about 2,000 Britons, and they asked them, what would make for the perfect Sunday? And they got some interesting responses. They said they'd like to wake up at 8.30 a.m. to the smell of a breakfast cooking, a cuddle, and then three hours of television. A quarter of Britons thought an ideal weekend morning starts with a full English breakfast in bed, and a third wanted to start their Sunday morning with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee before pottering around the house for an hour. Other things they said they'd like to do is a lot of gardening. One person said they'd like to spend their Sunday afternoon in a pub. And while one in seven thinks Sundays are made for doing food shopping to keep the cupboards stocked for the rest of the week, among those 2,000 Britons, no one said that church was part of a perfect Sunday. That grieved the heart of a pastor named Graham Nichols, who's part of a network of evangelical churches in England. And then he responded by saying this, I suppose I was sad that attending a gathering of God's people in a church wasn't kind of anywhere on the majority of people's lists. It means that they're not hearing the gospel and they're not coming into an encounter with God. Now, you're here today, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. But maybe you're struggling with why you're here as well. Maybe you're here, and if you're going to be honest, you're a little here under duress. Maybe somebody kind of dragged you here. Or maybe you've been here this morning, but to be honest, your mind is kind of a thousand miles away from anything that's been going on so far. Or maybe you're here, and if you're going to be honest, you're a little perturbed at what's been going on this morning so far. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, this worship service is fantastic. Why doesn't the person beside me have their hands up? They're just not as serious about this as I am. Or maybe you're here this morning thinking, man, this service has been fantastic. I'm standing here st so still and solemn, this person beside me is flinging their hands all around. They're just not taking this service as seriously as I am. It could be any of those things. Or maybe your concern as to whether or not God is really paying attention to your worship at all. Is he here? Is he present? Is he listening to us right now? Because you see, I get to this verse in John chapter 4, verse 23, it says, but a time is coming 
and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be His worshipers. So the question, the subject we're going to tackle this morning is, how can I be a true worshiper of God? How can I be a true worshiper of God? And the section of Scripture I want to start out with today will be in several different texts this morning as we talk about this topic of worship. It's one that's in, uh, rather, it's, it's a conversation that we're stepping into. Jesus has sat beside a woman uh, at a well in a place called Samaria. And they're having this conversation. Through that conversation, she was able to discern that Jesus was, was something like a prophet. He just knew things about her that he would not have known unless someone had told him. So he knew these things. She discerns he's a prophet. And then this conversation ensues about worship. The Samaritans were not looked well on at all by the Jews. There was division among them. And, and the Samaritans had kind of their own religion with a little bit of Judaism in it, but it was sort of an amalgamation of a lot of different things. So we step in this conversation. They're at a place called Mount Gerizim, or thereabouts in Samaria, where the Samaritans worshipped. The Jews didn't worship at Mount Gerizim. They worshipped at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So now we step into this conversation, starting at verse 21. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You may be seated. We're currently in a sermon series called Vital Signs. As we saw last week in Acts chapter 2, that there are about five things that are enumerated there that are essential and vital to the life of the church. We went through an overview of these five, worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and service. And today we're going to key in on worship. And in doing so, we're going to answer three questions as we seek to answer the question we posed at the beginning, uh, what does it mean to be a true worshiper of God? And to get there, we're going to answer these three questions. What is worship? Why do we worship? And then finally, how do we worship? The what, the why, and the how of worship. And I want to start out by answering that first question. Well, what is worship? We talked about it a little bit last week. And I think oftentimes when people think about worship, what it is, their mind immediately goes to the musical part of the service. Uh, the piano, the singing, the musicians up here. But it actually entails quite a bit more than that. Um, we can even talk about worship on an individual level. So in a sense, throughout the week, as individuals, we are worshiping God. 
And it says as much in 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So as individuals through the week, you and I, and whatever we're doing, we're to do it to the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that no matter what we're doing, we're doing it to make God look good. We want to make God look good. That means we're doing the work that we have humbly, and we're doing it lovingly, and we're doing it to the best of our ability. We're doing those things as unto God, as we are working for God himself. So that's what it means to, to worship on an individual level, when every activity that you and I are involved in is an act of worship to God. But what I'd like to focus on now uh, is corporate worship. And that's what you and I are doing on any given Sunday morning. You know, we, we get in the car and we drive here and we're, we're fighting with our spouse and we're fighting with the kids and we've had to get everybody in one place at the same time. And boom, we show up to worship the Lord. Already in the perfect place. Right. But I do want to worship, I, I, rather, I, I do want to focus on the idea of corporate worship. Now, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Have you ever studied ecclesiology? It's the study of the church. And that word literally means gathering. And when we gather together, we gather to do this thing called worship. Now, what all does that encompass? Like, you know, what do we need to be doing? And we get a good overview in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, all with grace in your hearts to God. So it starts out there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now that is to say that the word of God needs to be a meditation of yours. You need to be reading it, and not just reading it, but understanding it, and not just reading it and understanding it, but also able to apply it to your life. What does this mean? And then it goes on, and that also encompasses teaching. See, part of my job, what, part of what I get paid to do, part of what I love to do is preach God's Word. I'm here to help you understand how do you take the Scriptures that were written 2,000 years ago and apply it to your life today. And then it says to exhort one another. That is, we seek counsel from one another, and we sing Psalms, and that's referring to the actual Psalms, the Psalms that are written in the book of Psalms. Those were songs that could be sung. Then also hymns. Those are other types of spiritual songs not included in the Psalms. And then um, the spiritual songs. That's referring to songs that are not secular. That's why we don't just show up and sing Hey Jude every Sunday morning because we're singing spiritual songs. Then there's other elements to worship services as well. We take communion in order to focus on the work of Christ. We pray together. Then we also take an offering. And by taking an offering, we're focusing on sacrificing something from our means to the Lord. And also in doing so, we're saying that we're depending on God ultimately to meet all of our needs. So all these elements, the singing, the preaching, communion, the offering are all part of corporate worship. And then I would use a definition, and this is different than the one I used last week, 
Worship is the activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and our hearts. So, that, in a nutshell, is sort of what worship is. But i got to be honest, this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. You know, think about the favorite thing you enjoy doing. Now, for me, it's fishing. I just, I, I love to fish. I love being out there. I love hearing the water. I love the atmosphere. I love it when the only thing on my mind is that next cast. That's it, just getting that next cast where you want it to go. I love the anticipation of if a fish is going to bite it or not. And then what kind of fish is it going to be? How big is it going to be? How's it going to taste? So all those things, I love fishing. But if somebody were to ask me to define fishing, I guess I'd just say something like, well, I'm trying to manipulate a fish to bite a hook. See, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface on what fishing is all about. So we need to go into this next question, and that is why? Why do we worship? And when we turn to the Scriptures, we actually find that when you and I worship together, there are several things that are happening, several things that are going on. And I want to talk about three of them. Uh, first of all, when we worship, we delight in God. To worship is to delight in God. See, God has created us to enjoy Him. As a matter of fact, if you've ever looked at the Westminster Catechism, it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to enjoy God forever. That's about delighting in Him. Uh, as a matter of fact, God is the only person that can really bring you delight for all eternity. In light of God, everything else is boring because everything else sprang out of God's imagination. So to worship God, to delight in Him, is to go to the source of all that you may or may not love. Only He is infinite. In the passage we looked at last week, Acts 2.46 Speaking of this very first church, it says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This is the, the very first group of Christians. It said they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They are delighting themselves in God. They're finding delight in worshiping Him. As a matter of fact, delighting in God is one of the chief obligations of the Christian. And I love what John Piper says about this. He says, what could be more liberating, more thrilling, more amazing than that the God who made the universe would come to you, a hopeless sinner, and point you to the death of his son where sins are paid for, and then say to you, your first and greatest obligation is that you, you enjoy supremely what is supremely enjoyable, namely me and my son and the power of my spirit. You see, God is to be delighted in. God is to be enjoyed. His creation is to be enjoyed. So the first reason for worship is so that we can delight ourselves in God. Then the second reason is because God delights in us. He finds delight in us. Now, God 
takes delight in all of his creation. In Genesis 1, he looked over his creation and he saw that it was good. And then in a special way, he delights in us and he delights in us when we are worshiping. Um, the prophet Zephaniah in chapter 3, verse 17, he's talking about the Christian. He's talking about the believer. He's talking about the follower of God and says this, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He, re he renews you by his love and he shouts for joy over you. One of my favorite things about bringing my wife flowers, frankly, I'm not I don't get it. I'm not a big flower fan, but you know what? She loves them. So when I bring flowers to her, I find joy in watching that smile break out across her face when she gets those flowers. You see, because I love her, I enjoy something when she is enjoying it, even if it, I don't fully understand it. See, God loves us, and if we profess to love Him, we should be finding joy in what it is God himself is delighting in. And he delights in our worship. He delights in us. And then a third reason to worship. And stick with me here. Because we draw both near to God and an unseen reality. And here's where things get a little otherworldly. But this is so, so cool. Stick with me here. Now, in Old Testament times, the Jews had a certain agreement with God. And they worshipped God in a particular way, but they were very limited in how they could be drawn into the presence of God. They had a temple that looks something like this. And you see there's gates and courtyards and things. There's an altar. And then you get to that structure called the holy place. Now, Jews, if you were not a priest, you were not allowed into the holy place. Only the priests could go in there and only in certain times of the year. And then if you look inside the holy place, it's divided into these two sections. That outer section that you see on your right uh, is, is referred to as the holy place. But then there's that other area, and you see there's an ark there, and that place, the Holy of Holies, is where the presence of God resided among the Jews. Now, the only person who could enter into the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and only once a year. So you see, there was a big limitation put on how the Jews could enter into the presence of God. Um, it, it was very, very different but that was the agreement, the covenant that God had in the Old Testament with the Jews. But now we enter into the New Testament, and there's a new covenant, there's a new deal, there's a new agreement between God and His people. And with this new covenant, we have a difference in how people can approach God. Because, see, now we all have access to the Holy of Holies. I've often said if we had some time machine and we could go back to the time of the temple when the presence of God resided there in the ark. By the way, I'll never forget a kindergartner asked me one time, 
Now, was the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all living in the ark? And I thought, man, that's a good question. I've got to go back to my seminary books and look this up. But what we know is the presence of God resided in the ark. But if we had a time machine, we who are Christians could go into the holy place, rather the holy of holies. Um, it says as much in Hebrews 10, 19. It says we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. See, now we can worship God in his presence. This is explained in Hebrews chapter 12. And in that passage, the writer is telling Christians that when they approach God, they're not approaching God in the same way they did in the Old Testament, the way the Jews did when they approached Mount Sinai, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, Jews couldn't touch the holy mountain or they would die. And the author of Hebrews in this passage, we'll look at these verses, he's saying that there's something different now. And look at what he says. He says, For you have not come to what, for you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This was the Old Testament Jewish approach to God. But then something changes. Then what the writer does, he goes on to describe in verses 22 to 24, this unseen reality that I'm talking about. And look at these verses. He, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to, the and, to, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, what does all this mean? You see, this is a reality that you and I cannot see, and yet we are invited into it in such a way that when you and I are singing together, there's something happening that we cannot see. Now, just you got to use your imagination for a minute, but imagine on any given Sunday when we are singing our hymns and our songs that the very ceiling we're sitting under would roll back. And if we could look up and see what is unseen, we would see a scene of innumerable angels in whom we are joining with in our voices. We would see spirits of those who have died and have gone on to heaven who are worshiping God. And all this is happening in what's called an unseen reality. Yet I'm going to argue that that unseen reality is more real than the reality of you and I sitting here right now. Because see, one day this whole building is going to be gone. And your home is going to be gone. Because in God's final judgment, he's going to wipe it all out. But what's going to be left? This, in that sense, is more real than the seen reality that you and I are sitting in right now. And when we're worshiping, 
we are joining in his presence in this reality, singing with all those who are there in heaven right now. All of those references, the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion, are referring to this present reality. This is what we are invited into. And how do we respond to that? The author says later in chapter 12, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we see worship goes beyond the seen world into this unseen world. And it's something that's hard to keep confined by time or by physical space. So this is why we worship, because all of these biblical realities are happening whenever we worship. And now I want to go to this last question. Well, then how do we worship? We talked about being a, a true worshiper. And for this, we come to John chapter 4, the passage that we had read earlier. And I've explained a little bit about what was going on in that conversation. And you heard it between uh, God and the Samaritan woman. Again, the Samaritans were very much looked down on by the Jews. Uh, they were of mixed race. Um, they had a religion that was not the same as the Jews. So, the discussion ultimately led up to what was said in verses 23 and 24. Jesus saying this to this, this woman, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So I want to talk for a moment about what this means. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? And then how do I even kind of practically uh, do that? And this is an interesting phrase because we have these two nouns, spirit and truth, and they're joined together by this conjunction. But there's a way of understanding this, and I like the way that Tom Constable said it. He's a professor at Dallas Seminary. And he said, Jesus was describing one characteristic with two nouns, not two separate characteristics of worship, we could translate the phrase truly spiritual, truly spiritual. Now, even though the Holy Spirit comes and He empowers us and He enables us to worship whenever we've trusted Christ as our Savior, this, this phrasing is talking about worshiping God in our spirit. Now, you have a spirit. Everyone has a spirit. It's this immaterial part of yourself. It's this part that you, you can't see, and it goes on living even after your body dies. It's this, this spirit. And we worship God with our spirit. And we get a verse, actually a couple of verses. Mary does this, and it's mentioned in Luke 1, 46 47. It says, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God, my Savior. Now, I got to say, this all makes me a little uncomfortable. You know, I, my background is engineering, and I like things that I can see and things that are easy to understand. And all this talk about this sort of ethereal part, this, this invisible part of us, and worshiping God, who's a spirit, it's kind of hard for me. 
Because what it does, it, it forces me to remember that I'm to walk by faith and not by sight. So all these things, the spirit world is invisible. However, we worship the Lord in this spiritual realm. So how do we engage in that kind of worship and, and, and be a true worshiper, the kind that the Father is seeking, uh, that worships in spirit and in truth? And I want to talk about five things here. Uh, first of all, it starts by being saved. The first step to this kind of worship is by trusting Christ as your Savior. And if you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you could do it right now where you're sitting. It's simply acknowledging first and foremost that you are a sinner, that you were born with this sin condition like all of us are. And you have to believe that Jesus Christ, who came to earth, was fully God, fully man. He took on all the sin of the world, put it in himself so that when he died, he paid the penalty for our sins. Then the Father forgave those sins and resurrected Christ. And you accept that free gift by faith. You believe that to be true. This is how you're saved. This is step one to worshiping in spirit and in truth, in truth, in truly spiritual worship. But it starts there, trusting the saving work of Jesus Christ to forgive you. And then secondly, it's by seeing God as he is. By seeing God as he is. Now, this is where it gets challenging. Um, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 6, verse 3, we see these seraphim, these, these type of, of angels. That word literally, literally means the fiery ones. They're beholding the glory of God. The scriptures say in chapter 6, verse 3, that in beholding the glory of God, all they can do is repeatedly, repeatedly cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then similarly, the disciples, uh, when they're out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee and the storm kicks up and they look out and they see Jesus walking on the water, they see this supernatural act. It says that Jesus gets back in the boat and in Matthew 14, 33, it says, those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. So in both these cases, worship came as a response to a realization of who God is. These angels, they got it. These disciples, they got it. If God were to appear right now in his full glory, we would fall flat on our faces. That would be the natural response of seeing God as he is. This is not a particularly easy thing to do. I love the way, there's a, there's a fantastic theologian, there's a, there's a great book called The Church by a guy named Edmund Clowney, that if you want to dive in deeply about what the church is and does in a, in a theological sense, it's a great book to have on your shelf, but I love the way he puts this. He says, the transcendent glory of God draws worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. Our minds reel before the vastness of the universe. A major earthquake that fills us with terror is less than infinitesimal when compared with the force that flings galaxies across light years of space or holds them together in the wrinkles of background radiation. 
One short thunderstorm, a tiny moment in the atmospheric history of our small planet can leave us breathless. But God is exalted above all His creation. No cosmic process can disclose the immensity of His being or the infinite simplicity of His wisdom. This is where we have to get when we go in to worship this person, God. This is about seeing God as He is, immense, beyond our imagination. And it's essential that we get that down on our heart level where we are feeling it, where we are believing it so much. We are understanding it as best we can, the immensity and magnitude of God. This is when we're ready to worship, when it's an overflow of what's happening in our hearts. So it's essential that we see God as He is and not in something that we have created in our own imagination. Third, it's by praying. It's by praying. On any given Sunday morning, I gather with some elders at 8.30, and we start praying. We start praying for the service. We start praying for the musicians. We start praying for the people that are coming in these doors. But anytime we start praying, we need to start with the magnitude of who God is. I've been getting in the habit, and I'm still doing this. When I stop to pray, I always start with who He is. I start meditating on the universes and, and the galaxy, and I start meditating on the fact that the only reason any of us are here is because God has willed it to be so. The only thing holding your body together is the power of God. And in a moment, He could end that. So prayer is this essential part of worship. That also means that when we are praying corporately, that we're praying together. We're focused on what's being said. It's very hard. It's very easy for me to kind of drift off. But it's important that we focus on times of corporate prayer, on who we're talking to and what's being said. And then fourth, we sing. We worship God by singing. Um, as we look in both the Old and New Testaments, we see that singing is a major part of worship. And in Psalm 47, 6, it says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. Four times in one verse, we're told to sing praises. And all told, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. Now look, I'm not a great singer, but so what? If you don't like my singing, I'm not singing for you. And you know, the one I am singing to is not complaining. So we sing. We sing psalms. We sing, <clears throat> we sing hymns. And we sing spiritual songs whenever we meet. By the way, I'm so thankful for Sam and our musicians that lead us in this every Sunday. And by the way, I don't know of a church who does a better job of incorporating songs in such a way that they've kept our services intergenerational. You know, I don't want a traditional service and a contemporary service because 
I value all of us being together on Sunday morning, not divided by age. The young people need to see the faith of the older people. It's so important. It was one year ago today, it was on Mother's Day, that I sat in the back of this church for the first time just observing things, trying to figure out, is this, Lord, where you want me to be? And I so deeply appreciated the worship and that it was done intergenerationally, that we're choosing songs that two groups of people can sing and worship God in. That's so important. I'm so glad it's a value here at First Baptist. And then finally, we worship by restoring broken relationships. We worship by restoring broken relationships. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Christ teaches, So then if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has done something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift. So we make apologies when needed. We humbly approach others when we can. It may be that all we can do is issue an apology and then the other person is going to have to decide what they do with that. But it's important that we do what we can to restore broken relationships among our brothers and sisters in Christ. So then putting this all together, how can we be a true worshiper? One, by being saved. Two, by seeing God as he is. Three, by praying. Four, by singing. And then finally, by restoring these broken relationships. Doing what we can to restore broken relationships. And in closing, um, I want to share with you something that a friend of mine actually wrote out and put on Facebook last week. And I think it does a good job of combining our subject of worship today and then any suffering that you may be feeling this morning by virtue of it being Mother's Day. And here's what he wrote. He says, The church triumphant in heaven and the church militant on earth. The church militant here because we're fighting, we're down here fighting the good fight. Um, praise and worship the same Christ who saves together this Sunday. There is a deep comfort on Mother's Day for all those who suffer loss. This separation, though painful, is momentary. The church on earth and the church in heaven will one day be one and worship side by side together forever. This is one of the most powerful elements of Sunday worship. Every Sunday, we gather and worship is a foretaste of heaven. We all have loved ones there in heaven worshiping when we are on earth worshiping. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that we would truly worship you. Father, I pray that on any given Sunday, that as we gather here, we would worship you as you know yourself to be and not as something that we have concocted in our own minds. God, I pray that we would have focus. I pray that we would have hearts that are overflowing. I pray that our minds would be blown as we consider the magnitude of you and the holiness of you and the perfection of you and all of your attributes that make you God. Impress these truths in us down to the heart level. And we ask it in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.